Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, as you are well aware, we get the most amazing email from our listeners, including some just great ideas for episodes. That's true. Too many ideas for episodes. We need several more co-hosts to handle all of these ideas. No, you always say that, but as far as I'm concerned, there cannot be too many ideas. Keep them coming. (laughs) So I have to say that of all the ideas that we have received in the Have You Heard mailbag, I think this one is maybe my all-time favorite, possibly top five. Whoa. You're setting expectations really high here. I know, I know, I am. There's no way our listeners are going to agree with you given how high you've set this. Okay, so this one comes from a new friend of the show named Matt Clay. He's an assistant professor of teacher education at Fort Hayes State University in Western Kansas. How well do you know Western Kansas, Jack? Western Kansas. Uh, That's on the Missouri. Nope, nope. That's on the Colorado border. Uh, Yeah, it's still pretty flat over there, despite the fact that it's Colorado adjacent. Um, I don't know. I remember my father got clocked speeding 100 miles an hour there once, which doesn't imply that there's a lot of infrastructure or (laughs) cultural attractions. I'll edit that part out so as not to offend our listeners in Western Kansas. Yeah, right. right. Well, we'll be hearing a lot about the geography of that region. It's kind of important to the story. But for right now, Jack, I want you to just sit back and just listen to Matt as he describes the occasion for reaching out to us, where he was, what he encountered, and why he felt so moved to contact the co-hosts of his favorite podcast. I'm Matthew Clay. I'm an assistant professor of teacher education at Fort Hayes State University in Western Kansas. I saw this particular headline about this report asking, is rule a disadvantage? And I remember the evening I came across it because I commute 93 miles each way. And every now and then with bad weather, things like that, I get stuck and need to stay in town at the university. And so I, that was one of those nights. So I was by myself in a hotel room and came across this. And I'm sure my first words were something similar to like Gordon Ramsay getting served raw scallops sort of thing. The story that caused Matt to have such a strong reaction was entitled Rural Kansas Early Readers Suffered Steepest Declines from COVID School Closures. I feel like I should do that in a more dramatic voice. And it linked to a report by a group called Reading Roadmap Inc. Once Matt started digging into the document, well, he could tell that it wasn't all that, but that still didn't make him feel much better. You know, as an academic, you have the reaction of like, well, I can pick apart their argument. But the thing that made me so nervous is that this is a narrative a lot of people are seeing. This is shared through a news website. So as a long-term listener with a long commute, like I know who can help create a new narrative, who can have a counter-narrative, a different story. In fact, I want to say I emailed you that evening, the first evening that I read it. 
So, Jack, I'm sure that people got a sense just now that Matt had a very strong reaction to what he encountered online that inclement evening in his hotel room. But I wondered if you could just set the stage for us a little bit. These kinds of quote-unquote studies are really a dime a dozen, right? And I, I bet people can kind of picture what we're talking about, but break it down for us. Yeah, I mean, it, it basically is like rural kids can't read, right? I mean, that really is essentially what they're they're trying to persuade people of. So if you just scan this, um, you'll see stuff about, you know, rural students losing ground. You'll see things about, um, you know, low levels of English language arts skills, low levels of post-secondary readiness, um, there is, you know, a lot of doom and gloom forecasting about what this means for, you know, the the 21st century economy, and uh, you know, then there's a lot of talk about the need for new kinds of policies to support rural students in rural schools, which for me just always raises the question of what's the agenda behind the quote-unquote study, right? Um, Because if you actually dig into this stuff, what you can see is that the trend line here really isn't that different than trend lines we've seen, right? This was framed around quote-unquote learning loss as a result of the pandemic. The trend line doesn't actually depart much from the trend line we've seen elsewhere. Um, So then it raises questions, you know, to what service is this report being put? Um, And, you know, I want to just back readers out a little bit more to think about what do we actually know about rural schools? And what we know, (laughs) well, when we look at data, what we know is that rural students perform about as well as suburban students do. And nobody is sitting around wringing their hands about outcomes in suburban schools. And if we look at the data for urban, rural, town, and suburban schools, what we see is that students in rural schools graduate at about the same rate as students in suburban schools. And these are rates that are higher than students in towns and higher than students in urban areas. Their NAEP scores, so this is the National Assessment of Educational Progress, sometimes referred to as the nation's report card. This is a no-stakes standardized test. And because there are no stakes attached to it, we know that nobody is trying to game it. And according to NAEP scores, Rural students are performing at about the same level on reading and math as their suburban counterparts, right? So there are a lot of indicators here that actually things in rural areas are just fine with regard to the outcomes that are measured. Now, that's not to say that outcomes are totally fine. That's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about things in rural areas. For instance, we know that broadband access is far lower in rural areas. It's something we've actually talked about on our show before. We know if we look at the data that rural students who attend two and four-year colleges don't persist as long as their suburban counterparts do. Right, So there are things that we would want to pay attention to if we value rural students, which I would say we do or we should. But I wouldn't say there's a lot of fodder here for doom and gloom. And so that then just for me raises this question, what is this report setting the table for? 
Back to Western Kansas, where Matt has been waiting out a storm in a Fort Hayes hotel room. Well, the more he thought about that report about the decline of reading scores among rural students, the matter it made him. Looking at these percents they were reporting, you go, okay, 10%. And in these rural schools, and Western Kansas is a frontier rural area for the most part, so very rural. And so in these schools, 10% of third graders is two kids. To call an entire type of community disadvantaged based on two third graders doing worse on a test during a pandemic instead of before, it's really a leap. When you take a study and data and distill it down to, well, what does it look like in the classroom in rural communities? What it looks like is a lot of times it's it's one or two kids. And that's just a very different sort of thing compared to larger schools. By now, you may be picking up on the fact that for Matt, rural education is a passion. In fact, it's probably fair to call him an evangelist for the cause. And there's a reason for that. Matt says that too often, we only hear about what rural schools are lacking. That is, if they get talked about at all. Many times rural schools only get discussed or looked at in comparison to or or contrast to metropolitan schools. And so it gets discussed in terms of how many fewer programs they're able to offer, how much lower percentage of graduates move on to post-secondary education. In many cases, the solutions that are offered are really solutions to make rural schools look more like metropolitan schools. As someone that is very proud to be from a rural area, to live in a rural area, who still chooses to be in a rural area, that narrative really personally hurt, not just because this is something I like and someone criticized it, but because I've seen so much value and so many wonderful things that happen in these schools. And to see all of that reduced to what they're not able to do really, I think, devalues the great work that happens in rural schools and in rural communities. A little bit more about Matt. He's the product of rural schools himself, and his parents spent their careers teaching in rural districts. His mom was a special education teacher. His dad taught K-12 through music, that's vocal, instrumental, you name it, to every kid in the district. So when Matt decides to go to grad school in Colorado to get his degree in education, his reference points are rural, which, as he quickly discovers, makes him an outlier. I entered that program feeling like I had to hide the fact that I was from this rural background because that wasn't really represented in academia and research. And so I I felt like I was trying to hide that fact and be like, I hope hope no one figures out that I grew up in a wheat field. You really feel the need that you're trying to, to blend in with others and trying to keep up with conversations. It sounds really silly. One of the things that I struggled with in conversation to catch up with is that school and district aren't interchangeable words. They are in small towns because the school is the entire district. And I would mess that up in assignments. And you also, a lot of times, feel like you're spending a lot of time trying to communicate to your instructors, I understand this idea, I understand this topic, but that's not what it looks like where I live. I remember in a course dealing with equity, we were having this discussion of of marginalized groups of students, marginalized populations of students, And I remember saying, okay, but I have a physics class of three kids. There's not a marginalized population of students in my three. I'm dealing with three individuals. They each have names and I I know their families. I know their backgrounds. 
And it was really difficult to communicate that, oh no, this is really small enough that I really can know all of them as individuals. Now, unlike Matt, I did not grow up in the corner of a wheat field, but I am from the heartland, and my sister is a teacher at a small rural school in southern Illinois. Hi, sis. And so when Matt asked for our help in trying to shift the narrative about rural education, I leapt at the opportunity. And when Matt mentioned that his wife, Kristen, teaches in Dighton, Kansas, where she attended high school and they now live, well, I roped her in too, starting with a geography lesson. If you look at a map of Kansas and you fold it in half long ways, we're right in that center line between north and south. There's one stoplight in our town. And if you're going too fast, depending on the time of day, you'll either get pulled over or you'll miss us completely. We have about maybe 2,000 people in our whole county. Cows outnumber people in our county three or four to one. We have a lot of farmers and ranchers. When we can connect learning to, you know, hunting and deer and feedlots, like kids click in pretty quickly. Dighton has about 250 students, approximately 100 of whom are in the 7 to 12 school. Kristen is one of 14 teachers, which means that she wears a lot of hats. I currently teach 712 special ed. So any students on IEPs in 7th through 12th grade are my kids. I also teach K-12 gifted education in our district. I, in the past, in that school, I've taught 7th through ninth math, 7th, 8th science, biology, chemistry, trig calc, and statistics. I've coached cheerleading, forensics. I think that's all I've coached, but it's a little bit of everything. Kristen and Matt decided to return to Western Kansas after living and teaching in more populated places. Because of that, Kristen says she's keenly aware of what students in a school like hers might be missing out on. I feel like we get pushed to the side and forgotten a lot. There's a lot of things that exist in larger places. There are classes that exist. There are options. And when we have one social studies teacher for our entire building to teach six grades, we can't adjust schedules to offer three different sections of U.S. history every year. We're pretty set in stone as far as what we can and can't do. However, I think we also kind of get underestimated because there's a lot of kind of creative ways that we make up for that. Even within those constraints, Kristen says that there are all sorts of opportunities for teachers at schools like hers to get creative when it comes to meeting the needs of kids. One of the things we've done in Dighton, we created what we called our PBL Academy for project-based learning. Students could take classes, elective classes, core classes, not math, but pretty much anything else through this PBL Academy, and they could create their own curriculum. So if they wanted to take a class that conflicted with world history, they could take world history as a PBL course and design it with the help of the content teacher. So just because we can't always do something doesn't mean we don't do it. We are pretty creative. The teachers are very flexible. (laughs) You have to learn to kind of roll with a lot of things. 
Now, when we met Kristen and she rattled off that long list of things she teaches, well, that is not just a Dighton thing. About 40 minutes away, Stephanie Wick teaches in Ingalls, but her first teaching job was in the smallest school district in Kansas. That would be Healy, which has just 44 students. Stephanie previously worked in finance and then in higher ed and entered the classroom through the Transition to Teach program. She says that when she was just starting out, she couldn't believe all of the things she was expected to do. I would look back now and say, yes, the first year was rough. It was completely different than anything I had gone to college for or anything that I expected to see myself doing. I was teaching seven through 12. So all middle school, all high school. It ranged all the way from learning how to write a five paragraph essay to writing comprehensive research papers. My lowest middle school class was seventh grade. These guys are just learning how to do this. But yet I was also teaching a class that was trying to prepare them for college. So huge range of abilities, huge range of things that I had to prepare for. When I asked Stephanie what she thinks people don't get about rural schools, she mentioned something that gets talked about a lot in education these days, personalization. It's something rural schools have been doing forever because, well, they don't really have a choice. I think people do not understand the personalization that we can do in a rural school, the one-on-one connections that we get with students. I have students right now that are not even in a class with me this semester, and they still come by just to talk, just to chat. So you get that personal connection with more students than I think you would be able to in a larger district. I can tell you when I have a class come in, I know exactly what each student needs. And because we're a small district, I'm able to, I think, maybe more easily modify, customize, and try to find ways to meet their interests more. So, Jack, when you provided us with that very helpful overview of the study that set off Matt way back at the beginning of this episode, you mentioned the sort of doom and gloom forecast about, you know, sort of 21st century economic opportunities. And one thing that just stood out to me so much as I was working on this episode was the what a contrast there is between our last episode, Thinking Like an Economist with Beth Pop Berman, and the kind of passionate case for rural schools that you hear being made here. And that in many ways, these schools are kind of the opposite of the efficiency argument, right? That like that uh, having small numbers of kids in a vast land area is not efficient. And so instead, you hear advocates for rural schools making the kinds of arguments about place and about personal connection and personalization that, as you pointed out in our episode with Beth, don't often get factored into the economic equation, the quest for efficiency. Yeah, rural schools definitely are inefficient. Uh, So nationwide, about a fifth, so 20% of students are enrolled in rural schools. But because enrollments in rural schools are lower, right, fewer students per school, about a third of schools are rural schools. So we have, you know, it's sort of a disproportionality there. And then because you have you know, fewer towns, smaller population centers, you have more rural districts than you might anticipate given the population of students. So more than 50% of districts are rural. 
So this is a very inefficient system if all you're concerned with is something like, you know, how many buses do you have to run? How many principals do you have to hire? How many district superintendents do you have to pay? Uh, but, of course, uh, you know, there's a value that has persisted not just, you know, across the, the recent past, but across at least a century because reformers have worked really hard since the late 19th century to close rural schools and to consolidate rural districts, right? This was an obsession of reformers in the early 20th century um, who had nothing kind to say about rural schools and who really weaponized their rhetoric to make people feel like America was completely backwards as soon as you got outside of any major population centers. Back to Western Kansas, Several years ago, the journalist James Fallows wrote a series for The Atlantic called Our Towns, A Journey into the Heart of America. And one of his observations was that wherever he went, the first thing that residents of these towns wanted him to see was the local school. The passionate attachment that rural communities have to their schools is something that Matt Clay thinks about a lot. And note that passionate doesn't quite convey the intensity of the relationship. In the 90s, after Kansas overhauled its school funding formula in a way that punished land-rich, student-poor parts of the state, several counties in southwestern Kansas actually contemplated seceding. The schools are the community. They are the primary public gathering place. Any form of art that comes into the community probably comes through the school. And they are a treasured possession. That is that community's schools. Many of the parents of students went there and that is their school. And the attachment is really intense and generational. And I think this is a different level of attachment where they'll really will really get involved and will really push back on things that they feel like are a threat to their school. But that passionate attachment is not without complications. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know that my co-host loves to talk about the quote-unquote grammar of schooling, all of those things that make school school. Well, Kristen says that when members of a community have a very certain definition of what that is, it can make changing anything really hard. Some of the issue that we see is we have a lot of people that are from here or are from towns like this. And so they expect education especially to look like it did when they were in school here. Well, I had this Algebra 2 textbook and it was just fine. And I'm like, yeah, and you looked up all the answers in the back too. I know because I did. And now that we know more and we know better, we can do better for kids. We can create learning experiences that are more engaging. But when we have people who are unwilling to allow us to do that or unwilling to allow their kids to engage in it, it's really difficult. And we get kind of this cognitive dissonance because kids are at school trying things and enjoying it. And they go home and mom and dad are upset about the curriculum and the programming. And when kids are torn between school and family, family's going to win 90% of the time. 
then, of course, there's politics. When James Fallows wrote that piece for The Atlantic, he offered up local pride in schools as an example of how maybe we're not as politically polarized as we think. Well, that argument is a little harder to make these days. Stephanie Wick says that even topics that might have seemed innocuous a few years ago, like the rhetoric of presidential inaugural addresses, are now battlefields. Some of the curriculum has topics that some of our parents don't want their kids exposed to. So there are things that I really have to watch as to make sure that I don't feel like I'm stepping on parents' toes. For example, in one of my projects, it's about establishing claims and counterclaims. Some of the speeches that are brought up are very politically driven. And a lot of our parents think maybe that issue should be something that they deal with their kids on. I try to have a wide variety of options for students to pick from. I try to pull Republican, Independent, Democratic, but also there are some parents that are very strong in their beliefs and they want their kids to believe what they want them to believe. And they don't want any kind of topic that's going to maybe interfere with what they think. Scott Gregory is the Director of Field Experience in the School of Education at Fort Hayes State. It's his job to place student teachers in school districts, mostly in western Kansas. That often means trying to convince students to consider starting their teaching careers in rural communities. It's hard to attract talent. A lot of college students, if they're from a larger community, such as a Topeka or a Salina, and you say, hey, come to southwestern Kansas and teach in Liberal or or Ulysses, Kansas, right? They might not consider it, but it would be an ideal first job. Smaller class sizes, you have a lot of support, might have veteran administrators around you and teachers. The things that you need to learn to acquire and that you may not be so strong in, they are made up for in the sense of working in a rural community. Attracting talent is very difficult. A lot of districts in Kansas, you can pay a student teacher a stipend. So it can be an hourly rate or a lump sum. Some districts are doing that. Others are offering housing or money for a master's degree. And so it's a very competitive market. The political climate is not making Scott's job any easier. Like many states right now, Kansas has a teacher shortage. There are currently around 1,700 unfilled positions in the state. Scott attributes the teacher supply problem to the fact that teaching has become less desirable as a career, something the school culture wars are exacerbating. The political side is the other piece of it. And in Kansas, there was a Parents' Bill of Rights that was passed that essentially says parents can effectively challenge curriculum, classroom materials, books, that kind of thing. Schools would have to list or post those resources on their webpage. School uh, library books could be challenged and removed in the case of of a successful challenge. I think there was a requirement. I don't think it got put into place that would have required lesson plans to be posted for the entire year. But I think when you look at requirements like that, that adds more stress to teachers. And I don't think the conversations of how can we support teachers, how can we support public education, how can we fully fund special education, which still isn't being done. If we could find a way to do that, I think it would go a long ways. But I don't think we are nearly there in terms of providing support to schools that we need to. Scott says that when he talks to prospective teachers in his program, they're fearful about entering a profession that legislators seem intent on making more difficult. 
how will this look and work? How would I possibly do this? And <laughs> say, well, they'll they'll figure it out. You'll you'll get there. You'll have guidance and support. But at the same time, it just adds to another layer of what you will do. Teaching is already tough and difficult. People accept that. But I think we need to kind of realize the public schools and, and supportive schooling, you know, going back to Dewey and Horace Mann, that was an effort to train up a citizenry and to do that for the common or the public good. I think we've lost sight of that. And that might show in our political discourse and, and how we perhaps treat one another or try to work with one another. And I think that's to the detriment to the country as a whole. Way back at the beginning of this episode, Matt explained to us his reason for reaching out to the podcast. It was a specific report about rural students and their reading scores. But the real occasion was that Matt is concerned about the future of rural schools. That narrative that rural schools are lesser makes it harder to staff them, which then limits what the schools can offer. The result is a kind of drumbeat of doubt. Do we really need rural schools? Are they worth it? Matt says that in years past, rural Kansans have risen up when their schools have been threatened. But he worries that this time around may be different. And that's something we should all be worried about. Kansas citizens, especially rural citizens, have tended to, once it becomes something that's really threatening schools, to say, okay, no, that's too much of that. The thing that is a little bit different this time and makes me nervous is In the past, I believe folks were responding based off of what they saw in their community, in their schools, and talking to people they knew who were teachers. This time, it feels like there's more mirroring of national political narratives instead of just relying on what they are actually seeing in their community. And that part makes me nervous because the check on this has always been the Yeah, but I see it in my community. And, you know, those teachers aren't trying to indoctrinate anyone. They're great people who are working really hard. I know all of them. It's creeping in where the national narratives are more prevalent in the communities than they used to be. That scares me because, you know, when we lose the what I'm seeing test as a check, it becomes kind of a scary situation. A huge thank you to all of our new friends in Western Kansas, Matt Clay, Kristen Clay, Stephanie Wick, and Scott Gregory. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss the changing politics around rural schools and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. The Biden administration has proposed some reforms of the federal charter school program. Cue backlash. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. Well, Jack, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this was really one of my favorite all-time emails to receive from a, from a listener. And part of what I just loved about working on this episode was the level of intensity and passion that everyone I talk to has for rural schools. And, and what really stayed with me and, and also kind of weighs on me is how worried I hear them sounding about the future. And, you know, not just because of things like, you know, a sort of faux study about reading scores, but because the the intensity of the political debate right now. And 
I'll give you an example. The American Federation of Children, which is the school choice advocacy group founded by Betsy DeVos, they are very explicit about the fact that they want to make school choice a litmus-type issue for Republicans, um, one that inspires just as an intense reaction as abortion does. And what that's going to mean is that they need to pick off rural legislators. That means that they need to somehow convince rural legislators to vote against their own schools and to convince rural constituents to back those legislators. And they think they're winning, right? We see signs of this happening around the country. And so when I go back and I listen to people like Matt and his wife, some of the other people we heard, I just, I find this kind of impossible to rec- reconcile. Like, how how do you take an issue that people were once so passionate about in Western Kansas that they actually considered seceding from the state and then say, well, folks, too bad, we're not going to have rural schools anymore? Yeah, it reminds me of something that we have talked about many times on the show, which is the way that you can convince people of something in the abstract uh, versus when they are thinking about their concrete and direct experiences. And we see it really clearly in the conversation about urban schools, right? The national conversation about urban schools for the past several decades has been that they are essentially a dumpster fire. Now, historically, if you look back, Right, something that I was alluding to earlier. Uh, this was the the national hand wringing over rural schools and how inefficient they were. Urban schools were the model, right? Uh, urban schools were being praised for their efficiency, for their modernness, for the vast course offerings that they were able to provide, for their trained teachers. Right? They were these urban schools were the stars of the system, and. You can see how rhetoric really matters there, right? That to some extent, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy element to education where if people believe in it, if people believe that they are going to be well-served by it, that they will opt in, that they will spend their time, that they will commit resources to strengthening the system. And the reverse is also true. And, And we've seen it in the past few decades in urban schools where they're has been steady divestment. People have been encouraged to think about the urban landscape as one that is full of hazards and that they should navigate as individual consumers looking out for their own self-interest. And that, of course, has caused deep harm. And you can see how the exact same thing could happen in rural schools. And in fact, a lot of the exact same rhetoric is used to talk about rural schools. And it's not even in a different breath, right? It's in the same sentence where people will talk about urban and rural schools, right? That's where the problems are, according to reformers. And there's a lot of irony there, given how different those populations are, how different their challenges are, how different their strengths are. Um, And in the case of rural schools, the fact that the data that are often used against urban schools actually make rural schools look like they're doing fabulously well. Uh, So I continue to worry about the way that people can be convinced of something in the abstract, oftentimes with some convenient data used to pepper this abstract narrative with a little bit of uh, concrete evidence or what seems like evidence. And I worry when people aren't able to speak to their direct experiences um, or when they can speak to their direct experiences are just dismissed 
um, as you know, being self-interested, uh, as trying to keep alive something that is no longer worth preserving. I think that's such a good point because what's so concerning about our present moment is that there really isn't any distinction made between these kinds of schools. So if you listen to the architects of the effort to convince people right now to sow universal uh, public school distrust, right, they know that the heavy lift they have is in the red states. And they're very explicit about that. I was I was reading about uh, an event put on by the folks at the Claremont Institute, the Claremonsters as they refer to it. And <laughs> And they were, you know, they were, they know their, their challenges in places like Texas and frankly, Kansas, right? Where, where people associate the bad things with either the urban schools or the blue states. And so they were, you know, they were very open about the fact that, you know, they're going to talk relentlessly about teachers unions, ed schools, and they're going to try to paint a picture, you know, that those institutions have been captured by the left. And so it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter whether you're in western Kansas or in in Boston, Massachusetts, your kids are getting a leftist uh, leftist education. And maybe just one more thought to mm-hmm. add here is that uh, with regard to rural schools, that there are some very particular dangers. One of them, if we're thinking about teachers and how they are being portrayed, is that it can be a particular challenge to attract teachers to rural schools. In some ways, for the same reason that it can be a challenge to attract teachers to urban schools, because you know there are often perceptions that these schools are somehow underperforming or under-resourced, and sometimes they are. Um, but in the case of rural schools, because it means actually living in a rural area, uh, which you know increasingly Americans are not doing, and that's been the case for a very long time. And so now, if suddenly you bring the war on teachers to rural schools, and rural schools have in many ways, though not always, been immune to that because teachers in rural areas are often known personally by many, if not all, community members. But if you bring the war on teachers to these rural schools, they are particularly vulnerable to seeing the same thing that we've seen from teachers elsewhere, which is for teachers to say, screw it, it's not worth it anymore, right? This this is one step too far. Well, Jack, I thought that to show our gratitude to Matt Clay and the cast of thousands who joined us for this episode, we could change the name of our special segment for Patreon subscribers from In the Weeds to In the Wheat. Wow. What? <laughs> uh, I was going to make some pun about Wichita. Uh, I'm not. I, I've got nothing. <laughs> let's just let's just go do the paywall thing. Well, I'm fresh back from the heartland, and so my punning abilities are sharper than ever. <laughs> <laughs> So for our regular listeners, of course, you know that we rely on your support to keep the podcast going, to pay our excellent producer, and we offer a special segment that we call In the Weeds, and that's where Jack and I get together and hold forth on some topic that's of hopefully mutual interest. And today we're going to be talking about a hot button issue. That would be the Biden's proposed reforms of the long-running charter school program and why those proposed changes have set off such a firestorm. If you are interested in that, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a couple dollars our way each month. 
and Jack, now you're going to undercut me. No, no. Oh, I should have referenced a farm implement there. (laughs) I I just, I'll silo my efforts over here. And, uh, and say that people should do that. But also, you know, I consider the work that we're doing here every couple of weeks to be something like a teach-in. And so if people want to take the spirit of community organizing and grassroots activism into their communities and, let's say, carry a boombox, a la Radio Rahim, blasting the latest episode of Have You Heard, that would be a great way to support the show. Maybe not the most efficient way but certainly one that really shows your devotion. Uh, People can send us mail, as we've talked about many times in this episode. Uh, If you are listening to the show and enjoying it uh, and you're on Twitter, tweet at us at HaveYouHeardPod. And I don't know, there are other things I usually say. Go do those things as well. Make sure you subscribe, tell your friends about us, and, uh, and, and click five stars whenever five stars is an option. I love the boombox idea, by the way. Yeah, it's a new one. I've been working on that. And that's great. Um, so we are headed into the wheat. <laughs> for everyone else, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs> <laughs>